and welcome, if you haven't been welcomed yet, to Titan Drive Bible Chapel. Uh, we've been going through the book of Matthew, as you probably know if you've been here, and we're picking up right in the middle of kind of a discussion going on between Jesus and his disciples. So to open up, let me I'm just going to read the passage, start us off with that, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get into it. So if you would, turn, go ahead and turn to our passage, uh, if you can, follow along on your Bible or your device, and we'll get going. So Matthew 20 in our section is verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, it's always a privilege to hear from you, to open up the word that we that this is a blessing, Lord, that we even have in the first place. Um, I pray that we'd be listening, um, that we'd have soft spirits towards you, um, and that the only thing that would come out here, Lord, that would come through is uh, what you want us to hear. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, so as I was working through this passage, I was trying to kind of settle on a sentence that I could sort of sum up Jesus's goal with this passage. And I'm almost, I, I kind of, what I settled on, I'm almost embarrassed about just because it's so simple, but I kept coming back to it. So this is what you're going to get. Um, here you go. Jesus wants his followers to depend on him and to depend only on him. So let's let's talk about that as if it's a let's say it's a romantic relationship. Let's put this in the context of a of a romantic relationship. Um, babe, I want you to depend on me and to depend only on me. Sounds a little weird, doesn't it? A little desperate, a little juvenile, pretty unhealthy. Um, you know, there's dependency in any good marriage on each other, but. If that's the weight that you're putting on your spouse, you're going to crush them with your expectations, and you yourself are going to be an empty, insecure person. So why is it okay that Jesus asked that from his followers, to depend on him in that way? Let's, let's leave that idea for a second. Let's try it in another setting. So remember, my sentence is this. Jesus wants his followers to depend on him and to depend only on him. So let's say this is someone's relationship with themselves. So picture someone looking at themselves in the mirror, and they say, 
you're the only one who's got your back. You need to depend on yourself and to depend only on yourself. It's kind of hard to watch. It's kind of we'd, we'd probably say something like, wow, that poor person has probably been treated pretty badly by people. Look how lonely and isolated they are. I don't think any of us would sit there and say, wow, that's a, that's a healthy situation right there. Or, or that's, that's not a good life. Um, so, again, the question that I have is, why is it okay that Jesus would ask that from his followers, that level? So let's, let's jump into our passage this morning. Let's start into it, and we'll see where this dependency thing comes up um, pretty quickly. So the conversation today in, in Matthew 20 is, it's really part two of last week's section. It's right in the middle of this discussion between Jesus and his disciples that started back in chapter 19, verse 16. Um, so this rich young man has approached Jesus and asked him this question, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And so the young man says that he's basically followed the commandments of the, of the Mosaic law perfectly. Um, and so Jesus responds by saying, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And so this young man leaves sad because this isn't, he's not going to be able to do that himself. Um, he, he evidently, he has great possessions, he has great wealth, and he evidently considers that cost too high for getting eternal life and for following Jesus. So Jesus uses this example, the situation, to kind of teach his disciples something. He turns to his, his disciples and he says, it's basically impossible for the wealthy, or it's, it's very difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are astonished. They, they, in, in their minds, they view um, great wealth means that you have the favor of God, which you have because you followed the commandments closely. That's kind of the connection that they have in their mind. And we would, I think a lot of us would sort of agree with that today. I mean, if, you, if you're living from the wisdom of Scripture, if you are you know, managing your resources well, your relationships well, and you're living in the fear of the Lord, that generally life's going to go better for you, right? There's wisdom in Scripture that it's good to follow, that's good to obey. But the disciples' view here isn't exactly that. It's, it's that obedience to God's word earns God's favor. And that's a perversion of the truth. The word of God is not a ladder for us to climb up to God, but it's a spotlight to reveal our inability to climb up to him in the first place. Uh, legalism says, if I do these commandments perfectly, I can, by my own power, earn a good life and eternal life to come. So it's, it's self-sufficiency and has zero dependence on God, even though it's like utilizing the word of God. And therefore, it's got zero capacity to save anyone's soul. It's just cowboying. It's just individualism. And so the truth that Jesus is saying here is that wealth makes it much, much harder for someone to come off the drug of self-sufficiency. The illusion that you can take care of yourself is so much stronger when you have lots of money. And Jesus is saying that there's really nothing more important in life, nothing more important than someone coming to the realization that they cannot take care of themselves so that they can come to depend on him. So Jesus responds. So the disciples, of course, are astonished because they have this kind of broken view of, of things. And so Jesus responds to the disciples' astonishment, and he says, with man... Being saved is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And so Peter responds. He says, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? 
And it's a fair question, but it's one with a broken motivation behind it. And, and it's that motivation that our passage today, Jesus spends responding to. So before we move to that, I want to I highlight um, something that Peter actually gets right here in this question. So Peter correctly asks, what am I getting out of this? That's, that's the right question to ask. Um, and we, you can see this in the text because not only does Jesus not rebuke him for this, he, he actually goes at part of Jesus' response to him is to list the rewards that Peter is going to get and the disciples are going to get um, by following Jesus. And the truth is your life and my life are bets on something. The question is not whether or not you will bet on something. It's who or what you are going to bet it on. Um, some, some people in the world bet their life on a formalized belief system. You know, think of religions, Islam, Buddhism, or something like that. There's also plenty of sort of self-help, self-actualization systems out there that are gaining popularity. For most people, though, what they actually believe is different than what they try to believe. You know what I mean? Um, we sort of all default in one direction or another. And for most of us, we default to ourselves. We believe in ourselves. We rely on ourselves, especially in our culture. Self-sufficiency is just the thing that we all love to read about and love it. We love the story of a good pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstrap story. We love it. Um, so for us this morning, I mean, think about the way that you're living your life. You're getting something out of it, even now. And, and it's a question of, are, are you satisfied with that? Um, and we've got to realize that our lives are, are perfectly designed for the results that we're getting. So Peter asked this question of Jesus. He says, what am I getting out of all of this? And so I think for us this morning, we should be asking the Lord to make clear to us if we need to approve in our, in our motivations for following him. You know, what is the reason why you personally follow Jesus? You know, the things that you do that are a part of following him, why do you do them? You know, why do you come to church? Why do you pray? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you serve in action or Sunday school? Um, why do you go down to the Union Gospel Mission? Why do you share the gospel with your unsafe friends or coworkers? Why do you steward and budget your money carefully? Why are you motivated to follow him? How you answer that question is very important. And it's what Jesus is, <clears throat> excuse me, it's what Jesus is addressing with his disciples in our passage. So he finishes the previous section responding to Peter's question, and he says this, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And that, that word but, that's the beginning of Jesus' response to the disciples' broken attitude, and it really is where our passage uh, today starts. Um, later on in chapter 20, and uh, I think it's verse, we're not, it's not in our section today, it's I think verses 20 through 28, you, you're going to see this attitude that the disciples have kind of play out in real life in a situation. Um, you've got the mother of two of the disciples approaching Jesus, asking for these two to be put above uh, the rest of the disciples, they, they're, they're, they're asking, she's asking for them to have positions of prominence in there. Um, and you kind of get this, I, I just had this mental image as I was 
kind of reading over this, of, have you ever seen like a pile of puppies trying to get to their mother to feed? You know, just the way that they kind of blindly climb over each other in pursuit of their own individual agendas. That's, have that in mind when you think of the disciples here, because it's, it's their attitude. They're sort of throwing elbows for positions of prominence. You know, when Jesus comes in, they're, they're sort of expecting Jesus to kind of, they're still kind of operating on this idea that Jesus is going to come with a political power sometime very soon. And so they're kind of positioning, jockeying for positions of, of power when that happens. And so that's the spirit of Jesus' question. And so in true Jesus fashion, he pretty quickly sees to the heart of the issue, and he calls it out. So let's get into our passage. So verse 30, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So a denarius was about a day's wage, so this would have been a fair, a fair exchange. And going out about the third hour, so that's 9 a.m., <clears throat> he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour, noon, and the ninth hour, 3 p.m., he did the same. So that third hour would be, like we said, about 9 a.m., and which would mean that that first group of workers has been going for a while up to this point. They've been working from earlier in the morning. And so notice that there's only one group that gets an agreed-upon amount. That's that first group. They agree for a denarius. The next group of workers, they don't, there's no amount discussed. They just basically have to he, – he tells them, we'll, we'll make this right with you. You'll, we'll, I'm going to pay you what is right. And they just have to operate off of that. They have to trust that. Mm-hmm. Um, verse 6, and about the 11th hour, so that's 5 p.m., that's late in the day, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour, that's 5 p.m., when they came, each one of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. So, again, these other groups that have come after that first group, they're not told an amount. They just come with the assumption that they're going to be taken care of, and they have to trust the master here of the vineyard to follow through. Um, And... Now, when it comes time for everyone to receive their wages, he's, he's going to pay basically that last group. He's going to move backwards. The, the most recent group that was hired, he's going to pay them first and work backwards from there. So that means that that first group is going to be able to sit here and watch everybody else get paid. Um, so. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. So we can understand the frustration of that first group, can't we? Um, I think I'd be frustrated too. I think we're meant to sympathize with that group. 
So let's work. Let's start working through some things in the in that, that come up in the parable, so we can kind of start to understand exactly what Jesus is saying. So first, what's what's the vineyard and what's the master of the house? The master of the house is God. The vineyard is the activity of the kingdom of God in the world. And this is an important thing to to distinguish. As I was working through, I, I first was is you know wondering to myself, is this is this salvation? Is this what we're talking about here? And I, I don't believe it is. And here's why. Uh, first of all, this the, the parable is given to a general audience, or it's not. I'm sorry, it's not given to a general audience. It's given to the disciples. It's given to those who Jesus has already called to follow him. And second, the parable is a response to a question about reward. It's Peter's question about what what he's going to get. Rewards are earned. Salvation is not. Salvation is not earned. Salvation is an inheritance we get by being adopted into the family of God, and it's accomplished by the work of Jesus on the cross. So you remember when Jesus called Peter back in, I think it's chapter 4, um, Jesus tells him, you know, he's, he's a fisher, or he's, he's a fisherman, and Jesus calls him out of his fishing boat, and he says, come with me, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Jesus wasn't saved by, or I'm sorry, Peter was not saved by that work of going and spreading the gospel, of being a fisher of men. He was saved because he was covered by the blood of Jesus. So that, I think, means that salvation is not a part of the discussion here, although there's some parallels. It's not a part of the discussion. This is purely about rewards for those who are already in the kingdom, if that makes sense. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I think you get to listen in on a little internal family discussion that Jesus is having with his disciples. Um, and I hope it's, I think it's still beneficial for you. I actually think it's very beneficial for you because if you're considering betting your life on Jesus, this whole discussion is about what's in it for, for those who follow him. And I think it will be worth it to you to listen into. Um, so one of the first things for us to notice is that if the, the call to be a Christian is a call to a life of labor for the kingdom, um, Jesus left us with the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There's work to be done. And so I think the question, one of the first questions for us this morning is, is are we doing the work? Um, you know, you see the master of the, of, the, of the vineyard going and calling the idol to join in the work. And I would just ask, is that you? Is that us? Um, and just be... The thing that I think can come to mind is, boy, I feel busy. I feel like I'm doing a lot. I think the question is, just because I'm busy doesn't mean I'm doing the work of the kingdom. Um, you know, Jesus, in, in John 15, Jesus says this, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If the Lord isn't in it, there, there aren't going to be results from the work that, that actually last. And if you're wondering where to start, it's probably right in front of you. I always like this verse from 1 Corinthians 7. It's right in the middle of kind of a discussion about whether or not to get married or whether or not to, to be married. And it's, it's to a group of people that are kind of considering where they need to be, what, what they need to be doing with their lives. It's a group of believers. And it goes like this. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. <clears throat> each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him there remain with God. Chances are that the work that the Lord has for you is probably right in front of you. You know, your family, your friends, 
your marriage, your grandchildren, uh, coworkers. Um, if you're not sure but you feel idle, I'll just encourage us to just ask the Lord. Ask the Lord. I think he will make it clear, but it can be kind of a process sometimes to ask him, all right, Lord, what am I doing? Is, and is, are you in this? And am I abiding in you? Just start talking to him and ask him about it, and, I, and he will make it clear. Another thing to, uh, that comes from this parable that kind of jumped out to me is that reward is coming. It is. And maybe this isn't something that you struggle with. I find myself struggling to, when I hear about reward, I guess the idea that there's anything beyond just getting to be with Jesus is I just, for whatever reason, have a hard time with. But as I've been preparing for this sermon, it's just there over and over again. I can't miss it. I keep slamming into it, I feel like. The Gospels are just full of this. Um, and it, I, there's this great quote here from C.S. Lewis that I was kind of, there's actually a phrase in here that kept coming to mind, the unblushing promises of reward. But I'll read the whole thing here. It goes like this. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. So if you, if you, like me, fall into this category, maybe you don't, maybe this is, but if you fall into this category, I just encourage you, just the, the rewards are here. They're here, and Jesus promises them, and that's part of what is going on in this parable. There are rewards coming for labor. But let's also bring to, to I want to bring other scripture into this so we can kind of fully understand what, what scripture says about reward. There will be degrees of reward. There will be. So in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he's addressing this problem of divisions within the church. And some people have decided that they're going to align themselves with, they, they say, well, I'm, I follow Paul. And other people say, well, I follow Apollos, this other uh, faithful Christian leader in the church. And so Paul says this to them. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he nor plants, plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day, that's judgment day, the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. 
So you can see that so we have divisions developing within this church, this church at Corinth. It's actually kind of similar to maybe the attitude that the disciples were um, kind of developing in our chapter. They were trying to maybe get positions of prominence or align themselves with somebody else. And so Paul corrects them and he says, there's only one that's worthy to follow, and that's God. God is the only one that makes growth happen. But the servants that have been involved, that's Apollos and Paul, they have needed to be faithful in the portion of it that's, that God has entrusted to them. Um, and that includes the, the sort of their portion of the work includes these people, this church at Corinth. And he says that if a Christian were to, let's say, not labor at all, he, he'd still be saved, but there just wouldn't come anything with his life. There would no, no established works would have, would have actually come through them. So you can see there are rewards coming, and they are in proportion with the Christian's labor. But that labor must be done in Christ and not in self-sufficiency, not in yourself, not, not in himself or herself. Work done in self-sufficiency burns up. It's straw. The, so the, the question will be, what have you done with what you have been given? We've covered a lot, but we actually haven't gotten to the main point of the parable. So the main point of the parable is actually kind of a shot across the disciples' bow. It's a stark warning to them about what their expectations uh, were for what they were getting out of following Jesus. They were thinking, if I get in early, I get to run this place. I get to have my own little kingdom within Jesus' kingdom. And so in that first group of workers in the parable, you can see Jesus calling out the disciples. You, You can see him saying, that first group, that's you. You may be my original followers, but that doesn't mean that the ones that follow later are going to end up with less than you. And more importantly, the disciples had taken their eyes off of Jesus. They had begun to think about their own kingdoms, their own positions within the kingdom. They were wanting to be better than others that were coming into the kingdom. And so this same warning kind of comes to us today. Don't get jealous of others. Verse 15 says, do you begrudge me my generosity? And the, the little, literal translation, some of you might have a note in your Bible. The literal translation here is, is your eye bad because I am good? If you wanted a dog-eat-dog world, you, you came to the wrong kingdom. Grace is better than power over others. And so I think the question for us is, is Christian, do you find yourself wanting what others have given that are in his kingdom? Do you find yourself looking around at other people's lives um, that, are, that are in the kingdom of God? Um, do, you, do you envy the position that they've been given? Um, here's a hint. If you're thinking of somebody else right now that needs to hear this, that might be you. <laughs> we all receive a different calling. And the question is going to be, what did you do with what you've been given? Remember the widow in Mark 12 who, you know, she only had two small copper coins to put into the offering of the temple. And Jesus is watching this, and he turns and he brings his disciples' attention to it. And he says, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. Or remember a few verses back in chapter 19 where Jesus says, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. Children struggle with pride, but it's really nothing like adults, is it? Ego is an exhausting God. 
I think, in the long run. Um, C.S. Lewis, I got two of his quotes today. Has a, uh, uh, this came to mind. As I think he really speaks to the heart of the matter on this. Even in social life, you will never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking about what sort of impression you're making. Even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without caring two pence about how often it has been told before, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without ever having noticed it. That principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing you have not, been give, not, nothing you have not given away will ever truly be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, Rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. We got to watch baptisms last week. And if you remember that, they went fully under the water, right? Not just their head, not just their hands or their feet, but they were fully, all of them went under the water. And that's a picture. The reason, that's the reason why we do baptisms. It's a picture of death. You go under the water, and then you get brought back up out of the water by somebody else's strength. It's not yours. And I think that's the picture of that is, is kind of the point here. It, it, it obviously applies to salvation, but it doesn't stop there. It's all of the Christian life. So now that we're here, I want to kind of ask that question again that I asked at the beginning. Why is it okay that Jesus asks his followers to depend on him and to depend only on him? And the parable answers that question in two ways. First, he's, he's sovereign. He's God. He can do that. He says, verses 14 and 15 are a statement of power. He says, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? So Peter, essentially, in his question to Jesus, he had said, this is an investment opportunity for me based off of what I give, right? He said, I'd given up everything. What am I going to get out of this? So Jesus, in this parable, responds to him and says, no, Peter, this is an investment opportunity for you based off of what I give. However, power is not the primary means that Jesus uses to convince people to follow him and join his work. He says do it because he's good. The master in the parable used his power and his money for the good of the laborers. And the laborers who just trusted the master to take care of them without you know, necessarily agreeing to a specific amount, they ended up with more in proportion to their labor than those who originally had just started out with a direct agreement for a specific amount. Back in chapter 19, kind of in a quick little throwaway sentence almost, Jesus says, there's only one who is good. And obviously he's talking about God and he's talking about himself. There's only one who is good. And I think when we're talking about where to spend your life, 
there's nowhere better because there's no one else who is good. There's no one else who's going to return on your investment like Jesus. Uh, Bob Dylan's got this song, if you've heard it, called Gotta Serve Somebody. There's a few lyrics that were coming to mind. You may be a construction worker. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing. You may be a construction worker working on a home. You may be living in a mansion. You might live in a dome. You might own guns, and you might even own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord. You might even own banks. You may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord. You're going to have to serve somebody. So my question is, isn't it, isn't it better to spend your life in the service of a good master? James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Luke 11, Jesus says to his disciples, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He's a faithful God, he's good, and he loves to give good gifts. In just the next section that we're not going to get to today, Jesus is going to remind his disciples of what the future holds for him. He's going to be condemned to death, mocked, flogged, and crucified. It's God become flesh so that he could die for our sin. Remember Romans 8, Paul says this, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Our master died for us and remains interceding for us. There's no better place to spend your life. Christian, he got into your, you got into the kingdom by God literally dying for you. Stop building your kingdom now that you're here. Invest your labor faithfully. Abide in him and he will more than make it up to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for not leaving us dead in our sin, because there was no way, Lord, that we could fix the state that we got ourselves into. And Lord, as as we continue to live in our own strength and our own sufficiency, um, we live isolated and alone, and ultimately in a way of life that's going to lead to nothing. Lord, you are the only one that makes, um, that, that can accomplish anything. Lord, and you're the only one who is good. Um, Lord, help us to see that. Help us to come around to trusting your power and your goodness in our lives. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.